Welcome to Northern Nevada Green Living Podcast, where we support your quest for a happier, healthier, planet-friendly life that supports you, your family, and community. This show is produced by Go Green Locally, a nonprofit resource supporting eco-conscious choices at the local level. GoGreenLocally.org is where you can connect to the Northern Nevada Online Green Hub to find or share with six different directories for local events, projects, groups, nonprofits, businesses, online resources, or promotions. Visit the Hub today to sign up for email subscriptions, where monthly we send you the list of local events and any local green promotions that have been shared in the directory. Events, whether they are virtual or in-person, are a great way to support your greener lifestyle and ways to make our communities more sustainable and eco-friendly. Today in our podcast, I'm speaking with Jesse Cohn IV, who is a research assistant with Great Basin Institute. Welcome to the show, Jesse. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to speak with you and learn more about our beautiful local forests and what you're doing to help uh, and protect them and what we can all do to help. So to begin with, what inspired you to do the work that you're doing now? Yeah, so I actually just finished my master's degree. I was doing um, pine drought research, so pretty uh, relevant to uh, what we're doing in the field. Um, I'm actually from Louisiana, and so this was uh, related to uh, Louisiana pine trees, but it's pretty similar work to what's going on out west. And so, you know, just kind of seeing um, some of these horrible fires we see every year and wanting to do something about it. And it seemed like a good opportunity. I started, uh, got this job at the Great Basin Institute where I, I'm working with the Forest Service uh, in helping them um, manage their forests. So what has your academic path been like that prepared you to do this type of work? Yeah, so I, I've been interested in conservation for a long time. Um, I actually did my undergraduate more in biology and I have a minor in wildlife management. So I was more interested in the wildlife side of things for a while. Um, I had an opportunity to actually do some forestry work in Ohio uh, during one of my undergraduate semesters. And so after I got that experience doing some forestry work, I became a lot more interested in it. And then while I was finishing on my undergraduate degree, uh, my uh, one of my forestry advisors actually let me know that he had a fully funded master's program. Um, so I immediately, after I finished my undergraduate, I jumped into this master's, took about two years to do that. And I was working on uh, trying to understand how loblaw pine responded to drought and whether there was any sort of genetic selection or density management that could be done to improve uh, its drought tolerance. And so I have a pretty uh, relevant background of doing this sort of stuff. The only difference is that it was in Louisiana and not out west, but um, a lot of the pine behavior is pretty similar um, across the species. So having worked in other areas of the country, can you maybe explain to us a little bit of some of the unique challenges that our local forests are facing here? Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, for one, the forests grow a lot slower here. Um, you know, if you see a big tree out here, I mean, it could easily be 100 or 200 years old, if not older. While out east, trees just grow a lot faster just because the environment's a lot more favorable. And so, you know, out, I actually worked on uh, plantation forestry in uh, Louisiana. And so they had actually have their plantations in a 30-year rotation cycle. So that means they plant the seeds 
uh, wait 30 years for the saplings to grow. They do some thinning um, about at 15 years of age. And then around 25 to 30, you have mature, you know, tall trees that you can harvest. Um, and so out, east, out west, there's not as much plantations. There's a lot more the Forest Service kind of uh, selecting trees in the national forest to be harvested. But because of those slower growth rates, it can be challenging at times, especially for reforestation, because you know, it can take, you know, 50 years for a forest to recover potentially after, you know, a bad fire or something. And so, you know, just gets a lot drier here, fire conditions um, are common. And so, yeah, those are some of the interesting challenges we face in the, in the West. So, so I think most people understand that our forests have been facing issues with fire lately, but what, you know, what are maybe some of the things that the Great Basin Institute is doing and like what can the public also do to help lessen the excessive damage from those fires? Right. Well, I'd like to go back a little bit actually before uh, talking about the present because the past is very important and that's this history of fire suppression that we face out west where, you know, historically, uh, you know, even pre-colonially, uh, the Native Americans would manage the forest themselves where they would uh, do prescribed burning to cultivate certain species and make sure that their like uh, oak trees were prominent because they uh, ate a lot of acorns and they they would manage the forest directly with prescribed fires and so whenever the Europeans came and of course they pushed out a lot of the Native Americans uh, it kind of began this era of fire suppression so just to kind of put that into perspective for uh, listeners I mean this is like kind of the the beginning of our problems really started during this uh, colonization hundreds of years ago. And so during the early 1900s, the Forest Service was mainly concerned with preserving the forest and they had basically fire suppression. So if they saw fire, they'd put it out. And while that sounds great in theory, one of the problems is that we've had a large accumulation of fuels. And so if you if a fire occurs and you you know put it out immediately, you know those fuels will still remain um, until they inevitably burn again. And so I guess one thing I'd, I'd like the public to know is that uh, fire is is a normal uh, aspect of the landscape out here. Now, the intensity of the fire is definitely unprecedented, and we don't want intent these intense super fire events that have been going on. But to kind of get us back there, we need some fuel management. So. Uh, that's been something the the Forest Service and in private industry has been doing as well as to try to try to move our forests back to where they used to be, and that's kind of by bringing fire back into the landscape in a very controlled way. So, what are some of the strategies that that you're implementing to allow fire to help without having it get out of control? So, what are what are some of those strategies that you're working with? Right. So one issue that we see today is that the forests are a lot, they're a lot more dense than they used to be. And so there are a lot, uh, there's a lot of young um, trees and saplings that just historically would have been uh, removed by fire. And so we still have the old trees on landscape, but now we have a lot more younger trees. And what these, the problem with these younger trees is that because of the high density, it allows fire to spread quickly. And then if these trees are growing too close to these older trees, older trees are very resistant to fire that normally fire doesn't bother these, uh, these older trees, but these younger trees act as some ladder fuels. And so the fires will, uh, you know, 
they'll kill the younger trees, they'll spread up these trees and then into the canopies of the older trees. And that's actually how older trees are affected. I and mean, wind can also cause these problems, but it's really a density problem. And because of our poor land management um, for you know the past hundred years, we've had very homogenous landscapes where we have a lot of juvenile uh, trees that shouldn't be there. And then uh, because of this this high density and this homogenous landscape. So what I mean by that is that there's there's normally naturally a lot of gaps in the forest. You'll have areas where there'll be a meadow, where there'll be a shrubby area. And, and we need to maintain that heterogeneity because whenever a fire comes, if you just have you know a forest of dense trees, the fires can just rip right through them. And so one thing we're doing, um, I've directly been working with, is to try to reduce a lot of the smaller trees. And so we'll do that. We'll harvest, uh, we have, you know, of course, we have regulations and stuff that control what we can and can't remove, but we try to take as many um, younger trees as we can. And I, I guess, you know, younger is always relative. I mean, these are still pretty old trees, but, you know, in, some of the younger trees that are around 10 dBH, we're trying to remove those, open up the spaces between the older trees and give them room to grow and, and remove these ladder fuels. And then we'll also, um, there is some you know, I, I know the public doesn't like seeing a landscape without any trees, but it is important that we have these small patches of that. So within a forest, you might have a patch of open area where it's just shrubs or a patch where it's a meadow or something. And so, you know, some people call that a clear cut if they see all these stumps everywhere. But it is important that we have this uh, dynamic landscape and these different little patches because that can uh, increase the likelihood that uh, the, the fires will be stopped and you know they stop at the edge of those patches and we'll be able to just review the forest entirely. Nice. What is also the type of work that you're doing that also is helping the ecosystem, nature and birds and pollinators and just all of wildlife all the way up to bears and down to smaller animals. So it's just trying to maintain a strong diversity. So we don't want all the same species. We don't even want all old trees. I mean, so, you know, of course, the spotted owl is known for preferring old growth forests, uh, but there's tons of different bird populations and, uh, and whatnot that prefer different ages. And so, you know, for example, whenever we let's say we, we harvest an area or do a prescribed burn, basically by opening up, that by removing those trees and opening up the canopy, we allow greater light penetration of the ground. What that's gonna do is allow more forbs and um, grassy plants to flourish. Those trees, those plants will eventually flower and then that'll help pollinators. And so uh, it is important that we have this uh, diversity in the ecosystem. So we try to make sure that there's different species and so for example um at least in in my ecosystems in the uh, eastern sierra nevada um there's a lot of white fur so we try to remove some of this white fur because there's a lot of un there's unnaturally high levels of white fur because it's a tends to be a shade tolerant species so it can exist in the understory at high densities so we try to remove some white fur we try to preserve the pines because they tend to be more uh, drought tolerant and, and so uh, the Ponderosa and Jeffrey Pines, uh, we, pre we preserve. There has been some historical issues with sugar pine, where uh, sugar pine and western white pine were facing some, um, some fungal blights. And so we're trying to preserve those so we don't cut any sugar pines. Those are the ones with the giant cones that people like to collect. And so we, we do our best to try to make sure there's a, a wide variety of different um, trees to make sure that this diversity 
uh, allows different wildlife to depend on these different sort of trees and different pollinators and insects to depend on a different sort of uh, mosaic landscape. Nice. So I have to ask you, so as climates shift, how, as the, are there things that you're doing with the forest that kind of helps helps the trees to shift as a climate shift? Right. And so, yeah, climate change is a huge issue and it's going to be stressing out our trees. Um, you know, of course, one part of climate change is that it's just hotter and drier. And so drought conditions are more common. And so one thing we try to do is select for drought resistant and fire resistant species. And so that's so that's why there's a strong preference on these Jeffrey pine and ponderosa pine because they tend to resist the fires and resist drought uh, better than the firs. The, the firs aren't, aren't as drought tolerant. And then there's some also some different um, species compositions we look at. And so uh, red fir tends to be more high elevation species, and part of that has to do with the temperatures it prefers. And so as temperatures get hotter at the southern end of that range, uh, red firs aren't doing as great now because kind of that south, southern edge is kind of where they're limited. And as temperatures increase, that's kind of where they're facing the most stress. And so one thing we're trying to do is um, a sort of assisted migration. So we're trying to remove the red firs at those lower elevations because they're not doing as well and allowing the other species to persist more because those trees are naturally going to slowly die away at those low elevations. And so uh, we can either wait for them to die themselves or we can harvest them now uh, and which will be better for the ecosystem because, you know, basically if a fire comes through and all these vulnerable red firs get burned up, that could affect a large part of the forest. But if we're able to remove them beforehand, uh, the forest has a better chance of uh, being resilient to some of those fires and droughts. So you mentioned historically indigenous tribes understood um, for a long, long time how to to deal with using fire in a, in a positive manner. Um, are there ways that the Forest Service is kind of helping people to understand when fire is being used so that there's you know, that people aren't alarmed unnecessarily. Yeah, and so I, I don't, I'm not sure if I can keep specifics. I mean, I do know that during a prescribed fire, they often do try to alert the surrounding area and let them know that, you know, we're going to be doing a prescribed fire, be aware smoke could be in the air. Because, you know, most of the time when people see smoke, they get pretty worried, especially whenever we have these intense blazes we've had historically. So understandably, people can get pretty worried. And so... Um, I think there is, you know, there is some education outreach that occurs to try to uh, make sure people understand, you know, and that's kind of part of the motivation to be on this podcast to try to help people uh, understand, uh, you know, fire is just a normal part of the landscape, you know, there's a, it's called a fire return interval. And so all, most areas, at least in the Sierra Nevada, tend to have a five to 15 year return interval where a lightning storm will occur it'll cause some fires on the landscape. But historically, that'd be okay because there wasn't as much fuel on the ground. And so there'd be some minor low-intensity fires, but then the fire, the forest would recover over the subsequent years. And then a few years down the line when the fire occurred, it'd be okay. It's just now we have these incredibly intense mega fires that, you know, it's very hard for trees to survive. And so, yeah, I think if the, the public can just understand that, you know, um, we can fight fire with fire, essentially, right? We can use controlled prescribed fire to try to reduce the amount of fuel on the ground and then help um, 
reduce that intensity in the future if that area is reprimed. Yeah. So it are there places where people can go and just double check whether it is a prescribed fire just so they, you know, don't all have to call the fire department? Right. Well, yeah. So with the prescribed fire, I mean, you know, it, you're going to have a lot of uh, people on standby. There's a lot of preparation that goes into this because there has been some mistakes historically where, you know, even on, pri- you know, and, and this is a, both a private and a public uh, thing. I mean, private landowners will do prescribed fires and sometimes it has got out of hand. And so there is a great fear that, you know, if, if there is a prescribed fire, it could get out of hand and affect a local community or something. And so, there's a lot of care that goes in to make sure that the fires are controlled. Uh, there's going to be people around the perimeter. Uh, there's going to be a whole plan, like the, you know, basically, um, it's not just kind of setting fire and just seeing what happens. I mean, you know, the whole uh, everything is mapped out where they, you know, the the wind is taking into consideration. So it's only on like a perfect day where there's not a lot of wind going on. Uh, it hasn't. It's not super dry so everything's going to go up like a tinderbox it's um there's a lot of precautions so normally uh, you know there's going to be forest service uh, staff there surrounding the area there'll be fire breaks uh, to make sure it doesn't spread and so it should be pretty clear to people if, if they saw a prescribed fire site that this is you know a prescribed fire and then um i, I believe the forest service does alerts um, the surrounding area, if that does happen, I'm, I'm not, I, we actually don't work directly with the prescribed fires. That's um, a different uh, group, but I have uh, participated in prescribed fires in Louisiana uh, the, at uh, the, my university. And so whenever we do that, we'd make sure to contact the surrounding area. The cities would know and everything that this was happening on, on our land. Nice. So, um, so during the holidays and people want to cut down, um, trees for Christmas trees. Um, how does that work? Is that good for the forest or um, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I, I really think of it as a win-win, honestly. I mean, you know, people want fresh Christmas trees and, you know, kind of one of the problems with the forest right now is we have too many young trees on the landscape. And so by allowing people to cut Christmas trees, we're allowing people to remove some of these young trees, take them home and decorate them. And then uh, at the same time, the Forest Service doesn't have to spend any, you know, taxpayer money to remove them themselves. And so, yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of a perfect situation. And so, you know, it's not exactly, you know, the Forest Service definitely plans this out beforehand. It's not just kind of open season or something where people can just go in and take whatever they want. It's very particular areas that they've uh, planned to have those as like Christmas tree de- designated areas. And so I, I think it's a you know perfect opportunity and I think it's something more people should do. I don't think, like I, I didn't actually know that you could harvest Christmas trees from land, from the land until I came out here and started seeing signs in the forest saying, you know, you're, you're entering a, a Christmas tree harvesting area. And so there's, there'll be signs posted around the area and that sort of thing to, you know, tell people which, which were the best areas. And so, um, yeah, I'd, I'd heavily encourage the public to come and uh, help out with forest management at the same time and get a Christmas tree. Nice. Nice. Um, I'm guessing there's probably a website or something too, where maybe those areas are mapped out for people. Yeah. Honestly, I'm not sure. I'm sure if you Googled it, like U.S. Forest Service Christmas tree uh, harvesting or something, you can find it. I know uh, specifically in the Tahoe National Forest, there are some areas. uh, So, I mean, that's not, that's about an hour from Reno um, for any listeners that are uh, interested. Um, But 
yeah, I believe there there's probably some website or something that will give people some more information. So is there, um, are there any other things that you think people maybe don't often understand about the forest and that, you know, we might benefit from, from understanding a little bit more and maybe, you know, what we might be able to do ourselves or in our lifestyle that might be helpful for the forest? It's tough because the Forest Service is a very heavily scrutinized uh, organization. So, you know, if the Forest Service ever screws up with something, I mean, it can be quickly attacked and, you know, there's a lot of talk about waste of taxpayer dollars. And so the Forest Service is very careful to, you know, make sure that what they're doing is correct and healthy for the forest. And they do try to do civilian outreach to talk to the public about their goals and allow public comment periods. And so, um, you know, from working with the Forest Service, I do believe they have the forest's best interest at heart. They want to make sure the forest can last forever. And also, you know, harvesting timber is a part of that. And so, you know, one of the reasons they harvest timber is that can actually fund conservation efforts. And so, you know, by harvesting, you know, by selecting trees in an area, you can improve it for wildlife and then also get some money out of it to then fund other conservation efforts. And so, um, a lot there a lot goes on. We try to protect stream areas, and so any sort of streams are delineated, and we restrict uh, harvest in those areas. And then we we are very concerned with forest health, and so we try to remove any trees with disease, and we try to maintain any snags or dead trees. We're not too many, but we try to maintain some of that uh, to make sure they can be used for wildlife. And then if we see a tree that you know just is a good wildlife tree, uh, for example, that has a lot of uh, gnarly branches it has a, like a twisted form or something that's not good for the forest industry because you can't really get too much valuable wood out of it but uh, wildlife animals tend to enjoy that because there's a lot of perches on the trees for birds a lot of you know, nooks and crannies for insects and whatnot and so yeah I'd, I'd encourage people to be patient with the forest service use the public comment period whenever they have uh, concerns and then if they could be uh, comfortable with harvesting and, and smoke as well because I know that's the one big concern with prescribed fires that they don't want you know areas to become smoky so the public will complain about that but I, I guess I'd you know I, I'd tell people just you know a small amount of smoke during a prescribed fire is a lot better than having to evacuate whenever an area becomes you know an intense fire comes through yeah yeah absolutely um well thank you so much for taking the time to help us understand a little bit more in depth what um, the challenges that the Forest Service and other organizations are facing. And yeah, thank you for um, for sharing that with us. Yeah, I'm happy to talk. I mean, it's, you know, it's a, it's a very complicated problem. And, you know, unfortunately, it's not going to be solved overnight. I mean, there's a lot of land in California and the West that needs to be managed. And, you know, again, it's been a very long historical process and so there's a lot of different competing interests with private industry and public and in, 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 you know public governments and just civilians and it's just we just all need to get on the same page i guess on a lot of stuff and work together and it's not going to be easy but we can get it done thanks for joining us for local share green action until next time let's all use our unique talents and abilities and take meaningful green local action that benefits the planet and people.